Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Lone War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Joe Trusman is my co-host for today. Joe's a research analyst at FTD's Long War Journal. Joe, great to have you back on as co-host. I hope all is well. Uh, happy to be here as always. Well, let's get into it, Joe. Um, there was so much to talk about here between Israel's fight in Gaza, Israel's fight on the border uh, with Lebanon, with, with Hezbollah. And we have all the stuff going on with the militias, the Iranians launching attack in um, inside of Iraq, as well as uh, strikes in, against the uh, jihadist groups in Syria and in Pakistan. Uh, there's, you know, the Houthis going on and on that conflict in the Red Sea. But, um, today let's, let's start talking about, you know, it seems like it's been a little bit since we had a good update, uh, on what is happening in particularly in Gaza. Um, we're in that grind portion of, of a war where, the fighting has become a little bit static, so to speak. Israelis are grinding it out with with Hamas. So, Joe, let's give us a status of that operation in Gaza. Israel has segmented Gaza into basically into three sections, and it's continuing its fighting against Hamas, not just Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and all the other uh, Palestinian terrorist groups that participated in the October seventh attack on Israel. Can you give us an update on what is happening in Gaza and what the status of the fighting is? So, yeah, so there's a lot to talk about, a lot to say. So, you know, at the beginning of the war, the IDF targeted northern Gaza, right? That's where their focus, that's where their focus was. And um, I don't want to say it was easy. It's not, but it, it's easier than what uh southern uh, uh attacking southern gaza or trying to uh launch a ground operation against southern gaza uh, what's the reasons for that joe um, right what makes northern gaza easier than southern gaza i think southern gaza is much more populated it's a lot more dense uh, as far as uh, the urban environment um and i think uh hamas's forces and forces belonging to other palestinian terrorist organizations are more concentrated there but i think the big problem too is like like I was just saying, like the civilian population, right? It's 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 just, just packed down there. So, and things, the Israelis with the fighting in the north pushed, you know, suggested the yeah, Palestinians exactly. to go into southern Gaza, <laughs> right. almost creating a problem for themselves. You know, I always felt before they went into southern Gaza, they needed to clear northern Gaza, and then I'll filter civilians back up in there, start re restoring some basic services in order to go ahead and then get civilians in southern Gaza to move on over and, and to conduct operations in the north. That, that would have been actually would have done it in three segments, right? Northern, central and southern. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that they haven't done this, but, I, you know, enough of my thoughts on this. <laughs> you, you, so you continue. No, no, you make a good point. But but we got to understand, too, I think in a perfect world, if you know, let's say the IDF generals or who, you know, who's, who are drawing up or who are drawing up the plans for this invasion. Got to remember that, and we've talked about this plenty of times before, that they don't have time, you know, and that's, uh, Israel doesn't have time. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. It's not right. It's not fair. You can say a bunch of other, you can bring up a bunch of other reasons, but just due to the, um, you know, international pressure to, uh, to get this done right quickly, which is, can't be done quickly. That's the thing. And that's what everybody's known for years now, at least 
pundits and people and analysts that have really looked into this whole Israel-Palestinian conflict, if that, well, why doesn't Israel just, you know, this question has come up a lot in the past, you know, why doesn't Israel just get rid of Hamas? Well, first of all, that would take a long time. And I think that's what people are forgetting, okay, here. It's been three months, a little over three months now. And, um, you know, I see these reports of, you know, people talking about, you know, I think not necessarily that things are stalling, but the Israelis aren't making the gains that maybe some people would like to see, right? Uh, or figured they would, uh, or making achieving goals that they would have they would have made by now, uh, i.e., killing Sinwar or Mohammed Dave or whoever else. Uh, they haven't been able to, but that's because this is this is such a complex operation and it takes a long it's going to take a long time right and that's that, that was the fears that you and i talked about bill earlier when this war began was that well will the israelis really be able to pull this off because it's there's i mean hamas and the other another palestinian terrorist groups i mean they've built a vast military infrastructure and an under and a, and a tunnel system underneath gaza and they can't just be eliminated or destroyed in a couple months or a few months this can easily take i mean i wouldn't be surprised a year and i i don't know if again i don't know if the israelis will can can pull this off just simply due to the you know the time constraints the international pressure right that's building uh each month right or each day so um so this is i think this is a reason like things are just taking time because it is complicated right and things aren't perfect. Uh, the Israelis have to consider civilians. They have to consider a, a bunch of other things. So, um, yeah, it's just one of the things I just keep thinking back to when I see the, see some people or some reports in the news and stuff like that. You know, that things are aren't going as quickly as people thought they would. It ain't. It's not. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen like that. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, so that's that's really it. But. Th- that being said, the Israelis are making progress. They are getting to um, commanders and key members of Hamas. They are targeting them in Gaza. They are making those six, those. Uh, they are getting those achievements. Those, those they're reaching their goals. But yes, they haven't hit you know Sinwar and other top uh, Hamas guys in Gaza. So um, you know. I think that's one big thing that people need to remember again is that Israel needs a lot of the Israelis need a lot of time here, right? And um, are they are they get are they getting it so far? Are they getting that time at least from their allies? Yes, but, but eh, yeah, there's right? pressure. We're starting to pressure. see pressure arise <laughs> within the United States, and I'm not surprised at this. You have 11 senators that were seeking to. Um, put restraints on Israel and reporting and and restraints on providing weapons to Israel. I mean, this is something that would have been unthinkable 25 years ago um, when I was following this. And, you know, I think the Israelis are, um, you know, they're in a bind here. Maybe not today, maybe not next year, but the Israelis really have to be concerned about where it's going to receive international support a decade from now, two decades from now, or 30 years from now. That's that is if I was an Israeli policymaker, just an Israeli citizen, that'd be a very big concern. And I really think that this is something that um, one of the reasons why the Israelis are not backing down, I think they feel that they have to put this down now 
put the take Hamas and, and other groups out now because things are going to be difficult for them as time goes on. So, Joe, our, our colleague, uh, Seth Fransman, um, published something on FDD's Long War Journal. Um, I believe that was yesterday where he, the IDF issued some statistics on the, the last um, three months, the first three months of this war. And here's some of the things that they're saying, right? So we, this is right. They're making progress, right? They, they are dismantling tunnels and terrorist infrastructure. That here's what the IDF is claiming, right? And again, um, this is, you know, from, uh, I have no reason to doubt these numbers. They're claiming 9,000 terrorists have been killed, uh, be members of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and others. It says it includes 19 Hamas battalion commanders, 50 Hamas company commanders. Um, they're estimating that Hamas has up to 20,000 fighters in Gaza. I, I might argue that number might be more. Um, since the fighting began, Hamas has launched uh, 9,000 9, rockets in um, from Gaza into Israel. Uh, you know, these are pretty interesting statistics. The That 9,000 number, I mean, we keep hearing the Israelis have killed. You know, by the way, it's interesting since, the, I would say over the last several weeks, that number really hasn't moved upward all that much. I think the last number I've heard is 23,000, the Hamas, the what do they call it? Their health ministry, which is uh, the Gaza health ministry, which is Hamas run, claims that 23,000 people have been killed. Well, 9,000 of them, of them being terrorists. That's actually given that that Israel is fighting in an urban environment against an enemy that fights amongst the civilian population. That's a pretty, you know, again, I hate boiling this stuff down to numbers, but some, you have to look at look at it this way at times. That you're basically looking at one and a half civilian kills to every Hamas fighter or Hamas and terrorist fighter killed during the operations. I think if you look at the statistics of war statistics and major military operations, you'd find this is not an egregious number. But if you listen to the um, the Gaza um, health ministry, you would think all 23,000 people killed were civilians. So, you know, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up uh, to note that there's um, been some interesting developments that have happened over the last uh, three months of war. But, you know, again, as you noted, right, they barely scratched the surface in dealing with the Hamas problem in southern and central uh, Gaza. So uh, one other statistic I, I noticed in there, 2000 rockets launched into Israel from Lebanon um, and 30 rockets from Syria since October 7th. So that 2000 number is quite significant. Um, I did not realize that many rockets have come from the north. And we'll, we'll, we'll turn to that shortly. But any thoughts on the um the statistics oh well, one last statistic too that i that i recall they said 522 israeli soldiers have been killed in the fighting um since the war began uh that's and around tw a little over 2500 um wounded uh so the israelis these are pretty high casualties for the is israel defense force uh just something to you know it shows the seriousness of this fight the israelis do not like to take casual casualties of these numbers of most of the fight of their soldiers or reservists so this really hits home yeah um so yeah the statistics are interesting um if you want to kind of you know, analyze them at least with the soldiers i think a good chunk of those i, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head but um a good chunk of those the, the uh soldiers that have been killed died on the first day when the, the the initial attack i think it's probably over 300 a little over 300 so just uh, so but regardless i'll tell you this and this is just from me talking uh to officials israeli officials uh, my let's say gut feeling but uh my impression 
is that while the amount of soldiers is high for Israel, I think they would have expected much more in an operation like this. All right. I think, and I, I would have expected a much higher count. If, if uh, And I think this is one of the reasons why Israel never really went into Gaza and destroyed Hamas, eliminated Hamas in previous years, okay? I think it was the, they were just very concerned, among other things, of course, of, of the high casualty amount that they would they would incur, right? Or they would receive. So, but honestly, I, I, I think they expected more casualties out of this, more, more soldiers killed, right? So if there's a, if you can want to say anything good that comes out of this, at least is that, right? So, um, but the rockets, a lot of rockets. It's the most rockets that's ever been fired, right? At Israel. This is happening while Israel, while Israel is launching an operation. It has air assets over. It has ISR intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance uh, up over Gaza, right? A blanket over Gaza. Remember that when Hamas uh, wanted a ceasefire to exchange hostages, it wanted windows into <laughs> right into no aircraft, yeah. no drones, no ISR flying over Gaza. That tells you how important. So the fact that they're able to get nine thousand rockets off over the course of three months while they're on while they're on the receiving end of a major major military operation tells you that the Israeli Israel Defense Force has a lot of work to do. And really quickly, Joe, on, you're you're right on that point. So they're saying five hundred and twenty two soldiers have been killed since the war began. One hundred eighty eight of them since the ground operations began. And I'm assuming that's both northern and southern Israel. So. Yeah, and so that actually is quite a low number given the intensity of conflict um, in both theaters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it is. Um, uh, that's my impression. So, I mean, of course, every life is, um, you know, every soldier that, that is killed, um, it's it's a huge loss for Israel. But but uh, yeah, you know, so in a war like this, I think it's, I imagine it's it's that that number is on the low side that the Israelis expected. So, uh, but really quickly, a uh, lot of rockets, a lot, and there's going to be more. Okay. I understand, you know, you see the reports that, uh, you know, Israel is dismantling, the IDF is dismantling terrorist infrastructure, but there's going to be more. You got to understand that in some of the videos and some of the, or rather the evidence that I've seen, whether it's, you know, it's especially, you know, the open source videos, it's very easy for, these terrorist organizations, Hamas, to launch a rocket or several rockets. I've seen some of them just put these rockets on the ground, aim it uh, maybe just a little high, right? They put something underneath it and just let it go. That's it. There's no launcher, nothing. It's just put it on the ground. <laughs> I crazy. saw this in Iraq and Afghanistan, numerous yeah. right? videos of this, right? <laughs> Crop up a rocket on some bricks, but it's an effective tactic. Um, yeah. People think it's Mickey Mouse, and, and to a degree it is, but pretty darn good. These rockets hit bases. You have a great video posted up on, on your Twitter feed. It's at yeah, Truesman yeah. um, for the listeners. Um, this was from yesterday, I believe. I'm, I'm looking at it right now where um, – they launched a barrage of rockets and you know oh, you could see the cameraman uh starting to run away because a couple of these rounds fall short falling if, if i'm looking at that video correct it looks like a round comes in real close to him yeah it's just a fascinating um yeah. video oh i want to make a real quick statement joe uh, you know with mm -hmm. the when talking about the casualties and it's part the part of what i really hate about this job is like you know again i know i mentioned it earlier but looking at this analytically saying only 188 soldiers killed since the ground operation you know i guess you know it's you do have to look at this and you do have to put casualties in perspective but it's really hard 
knowing that there's real human beings on that are taking those casualties that are being killed that are being wounded or right. being you know handicapped because they lose an arm lose a leg or or um you know traumatic brain injuries things of that nature and that's the the realities of war as us as analysts like you know sometimes we could sit here and talk about it but um it is another good reason for for those reporting on war or but to understand it better to get out there and actually see it themselves because it's you have to remind yourself there's a human element to this as you know it's not a video game it's just not a board game it's not moving numbers around that there's real people on on all sides and civilians are being killed in gaza without a doubt yeah. um you know my position on that is hamas get in that today they could lay down their arms their leaders could surrender and this would all be over over and there'll be no more uh civilian casualties in gaza there'll be no more um civilian casualties in israel no more israeli soldiers killed but um, yeah, let's let's continue. I don't want to draw. Yeah. I just want to, you know, every once in a while, I got to remind myself and remind the audience that we're not robots here, um, you know, with a bean bean counter, with an abacus counting, you know, killed and wounded. Right. Um, the let's let's turn to the north, Joe. Um, yeah. Again, that, that that report noted that 2000 rockets have been fired from the north. What um, I believe the average number of attacks per day is what somewhere around between I would say like four to eight. Does that sound yeah. about right? Oh yeah, somewhere yeah, in that number. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we have to remember too that one of just one attack would have caused a violent response by the Israelis prior to October seventh, and now the 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 new norm is for the Israelis <laughs> to take significant attacks, four to eight attacks, and some of these are are sophisticated attacks, anti tank rockets, you know, right. hitting tanks or hitting compounds, and um, I believe there were some ballistic missiles fired or or i'm not sure what the type of ro- missiles or rockets that were used that took out an intelligent not took out the base but struck the intelligence base up in the north um actually i have a friend uh he's in israel he said his two children were ser- serving on the base um and uh one of the children actually you know some of those rockets fell in pretty close so these are the the north really just is it's, it's kind of what we're all waiting for isn't it we're just waiting yeah. for this to blow up. The Israelis really don't want to go hard into the north. They're just basically playing tit for tat right now, so this doesn't escalate. But it's—I think it's just a matter of time. The, there's what well over a hundred thousand people that are away from their homes, right? And uh, you know the mass mobilization of uh, Israeli troops—they can't. They just can't. The Israelis can't sustain this forever. I, I feel that that northern problem has to come to some sort of head or a resolution at some point in time for the Israelis. Right. And, you know, they're, they're definitely trying. I mean, yeah, it's basically right now ping pong. It's a ping pong match, essentially. Um, and the Israelis are taking advantage of it. I mean, listen, Hezbollah, again, we've talked about this. Hezbollah chose to be in this war. Nobody forced it to be in there, right? They, they are the ones that fired the first shot and continued after the ceasefire uh, expired between Gaza, uh, Israel and Hamas, they continued uh, to fire rockets after that. So, or rather, continued to attack. So, uh, this is a war of their own choosing. So, I think that's uh, that's first and foremost. Second, uh, I think Israel is taking advantage of Hezbollah's participation in this war by um, destroying Hezbollah assets uh, located uh, in southern Lebanon. And, but it's limited, right? They're not, you know, other than the killing of Hamas, the Hamas leader, Salah Hararuri, and, and, and his comrades, 
um, they're not attacking Beirut. All right, they're not. You know, they're not going really far up there in Lebanon. So they're keeping it. They're limiting it to the border, mostly. So, um, so yeah, but so Israel's taking advantage of this, right? They're they're removing some of these threats that the Hezbollah has in the southern Lebanon. Um, but at the same time, this has to end, like you're saying. So how does this end? You know, Hezbollah. I mean, rather the Israelis. You know, they're pushing this. And I won't get into it uh, too much, but uh, you know, the, some, uh, the resolution seventeen oh one, and uh, trying to push Hezbollah back, right? Uh, you know, some say north of Latani, uh, then the numbers can change depending on which report you read. It could be they're just trying to push Hezbollah away from the southern uh, from the border area, simply because this war right now is showing that Hezbollah can attack with especially with guided missiles uh it can attack um civilian israel uh civilian infrastructure in israel and military infrastructure uh, in israel uh very easily okay because they're so close so that's why they're trying to push push Hezbollah back diplomatically right but israel said and i think and i believe that they're ready by the way israel said that they will force it if they have to right militarily speaking so, um, so yeah, it can definitely happen. Absolutely. Will it happen? I don't know. But like you were saying, it can be one thing can happen, mass casualty event, and boom, that's it. So, um, but right now, everything uh, seems, or, or Hezbollah has demonstrated at least, I think the Israelis have, that um, nobody wants this, a wider war, even though the, even though the war itself is... Uh, enough to trigger or the conflict in the north is enough to, already to trigger a wider war so um very complicated right very yeah. very complicated it's interesting joe it's you know the israelis really don't want this but recognize they they're going to have to do it but i think hezbollah is has also demonstrated that it wants to do just enough to show that it's supporting hamas but it really doesn't want to invoke the ire of the israelis because it, um, and just so, just you know, again, this is one of those times we should put a map up, but obviously you can't do that on a, on a podcast like this. Well, not until we get video going. The Latani River, um, as it runs east-west, um, is about, I'd say, anywhere from 15 to 20 miles, uh, give or take, depending on where the border is drawn, drawn um, uh, into southern lebanon so the israelis are looking for a buffer of about 15 miles or so um now the hezbollah possesses a lot of weapons that could go far beyond that but still this would end those easy low-cost attacks the rockets mortars things like that you know items with a range of you know five to 15 miles which hezbollah has quite a bit and get that could get the people the israeli people back into the border and um yes the israelis would have to step up patrols along the border but i do think that that buffer zone very likely has to be restored i think that's the real it's funny as you were mentioning that that was the point i wanted to make and i was the question i was going to ask is you know hey there is a lot of talk you know about the the israelis wanting to force hezbollah past the latani and i'm glad you brought that up um i think this is going to be the one i don't think hezbollah is going to cede to that very easily i think they're going to have to be forced out of there and if you followed the war was it 2006 when israel battled hezbollah in southern lebanon is that correct i think yeah i think that's right that was some pretty tough fighting for the israelis they thought they could they could drive out hezbollah with an air war it did not dislodge um, when they did send troops in. And this was this was what, by the way, one of those wars where the time 
I like put a timer on with 30 days and the Israelis were pretty much done fighting in Southern Lebanon. I think it was by like 33, 34, 35 days, something like that, where they ceased the fighting. And a lot of people claim that that was a big win for the Israelis, but I, I viewed that differently. I think the Israelis learned that if they want to keep Hezbollah out of Southern Lebanon, keep them away from their borders, that it was going to require more than just air operations to do. The Israelis um, are reliant, um, have been reliant on air operations to, to, um, impose their will but i don't think i think the israel israel's enemies have learned that the, they could dig in and they can they can outlast this um the u.s learned these lessons very hard particularly in afghanistan so yeah i think that's the one to watch for when if that fighting does begin what is it, israel's decision is it to just degrade hezbollah's uh war fighting capabilities and inflict casualties or do they actually want to recreate a buffer zone into southern israel and we all know how that worked out the last time. That was um, quite quite a difficult period for the Israelis. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think they understand they're not going to eliminate Hezbollah from Lebanon. Okay, so um, so yeah, this type of uh, creating this buffer zone, you know, may work. And you got to remember, you know, this is a negotiation. Okay, so you negotiate if you want something. Generally. You know, you'll say, oh, you know, you'll ask for something that's a lot more than you're willing to really, you know, that you'll settle for, right? So they say, let's say they really say North of Latani, but in reality, they're okay. They would be okay with something closer, right? So I think that's what's going on here. So this type of uh, Middle East negotiating. So um, so that's probably what's happening here. So we'll see what ends up happening diplomatically. Does Hezbollah move? Uh, you know? I don't know. Maybe, maybe some concessions. Maybe I don't. I don't want to say. Uh, maybe there's some disputed areas where Hezbollah says, "Okay, this is Lebanese land." Maybe the Israelis will say, "Okay, here, you know, you can take this. You know, like the we'll we'll, cons- we'll we'll let you have this village, for example, right, or whatever, or this piece of land." Uh, but in return, you know, you have to move back X amount of kilometers or whatever. So maybe something like that. I'm just, you know, pulling that out just as an example. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I don't see anything changing anytime soon. No, not not until it really kicks off. I think, think we're just going to see status quo right now, which is shocking to witness. Um, you know, again, on October 6, 2023, we would have seen four to eight attacks against Israel from Lebanon. Um the Israelis would be freaking out. And right now they're just trying to manage that problem. But the Hezbollah has to understand that at some point the the IDF is going to turn its ire on them. So it'll be interesting to see if they DS if if the Hezbollah de-escalates first. If they if Hezbollah wants to stay in the South, this is kind of an interesting, I know we're just kind of kind of gaming this out. But if Hezbollah really wants to remain in the South, the best thing they could do is stop firing on the Israelis. Um it would give the Israelis, it would take away that justification for the israelis to hit um hezbollah hard if let's say let's say a week from now hezbollah has ceased all attacks from southern lebanon and it would obviously have to get hamas and palestinian islamic jihad and other groups to cease attacks as well that i think that would be that would uh, you know that would be a smart play if you were hezbollah but i don't know how these groups actually view these types of situations but so let's quickly uh let's move on to um last couple of days the israelis so two days ago the israelis launched a strike 
not just into Iraq. They they hit a home of a a Kurdish businessman. Um, the is the Iranians are claiming they targeted three sites operated by Mossad, Israeli uh, foreign intelligence. Um, they call them, you know, the headquarters of spies. That's a quote. Um, so, but they launched ballistic missiles into um, into Iraq. The Iraqi government, you know, denounced these attacks. But at, at the same time, the Iranians uh, launched an attack against jihadist groups in Syria, as well as attacks in the Pakistan, which I thought to be really interesting. It's not the first time something like this has happened, but the Iranians seem to be getting. Um, or seem to be emboldened to um, conduct strikes against its neighbors. And in the case of Syria, even in, inside of its ally. Um, but the attack into Iraq is the one that got the most play. Um, what is your thoughts on this attack? What are, the, what are the Iranians seeking to accomplish by doing this? By the way, um, some some of these missiles are said to have landed close to the U.S. consulate. I'm, I haven't heard. And it seemed that the early on people thought the attack was against the consulate. I sort of held back on this because I wanted to see how that fleshed out because that didn't really make sense for there to be a direct attack. I'm sure they don't mind rockets landing or these ballistic missiles landed nearby. But um, I suspect the Iranians... You know, if they really wanted to hit the U.S. consulate, they could have done so. But um, what is what Iran's motivations here for launching these attacks? Yeah, I mean, I just see this more as, you know, just flexing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think I, that's that's my read on this as well. I don't think there was a strategic play here. It was more of look what we can do. Look at, you know, exactly. Look, right. Exactly. You know, Especially with everything going on. They're all, right. Everything is connected. All right. It that's is. what people need to remember that. Everything going on right now in the Middle East is most most of it is connected, and I think this whole thing with what happened with the Iranians firing ballistic missiles, and I think there were some drones as well. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, everything that they're doing is, is is connected to I think what's happening in Gaza and with Israel, um, this Mossad base, whatever that is. Um, you know, it's not the first time that they've fired uh, ballistic missiles or drones at a so Alleged Mossad base, right? Yeah, the, I think it's funny. The Iraqis actually launched an investigation into this and determined there is no such thing. Nah. But the but it's it's I think it's a way for the Iranians to flex, not just to show the international community, but to do it against Iraq as well. To do it against, exactly. The Iranians have a very complicated relations with the Kurds, and the Kurds, right, are survivors. They have to play ball with a lot of different people, right? They're Nobody wants Kurdish independence. The Iranians don't want it. The Iraqis don't want it. The Syrians don't want it. And the Turks don't want it. So the the Kurds in Iraq particularly have to play this, you know, maintain relationships with the IRGC and whatnot. But I also think that sometimes these attacks are directed at a message. Um, you know, I can't prove this, but there's a you know a lot of talk about you know the Iraqis wanting the U.S. to leave, and then you're hearing well the Kurds would say well we would still welcome the Americans. I think an attack like this. There's a lot going on. I think that it's, you know, again, like we said, part of the broader Iran's flex, but I also think this is a local flex, a warning to the Kurds that um, who's really in control of this situation. I think when you put these two together, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And then they have their own internal politics as well, right? I mean, remember last month in December, like, uh, you had uh, three important members of the IRGC that were killed in Syria, for example, those were attributed to Israel. So, uh so yeah they i think it's just a a message really more than anything and you know and everything what's happening with the houthis right and uh everything else it's all 
it's all connected, I think. Um, and uh, again, yeah, about thought, about the Houthis, right? Yeah. The U.S. finally re <laughs> one of the first acts by the Biden administration is to delist the Houthis. Um, I don't know, you know, part of the re their reasoning was so it would help aid get into Yemen, right? Um, but I think some of this was related to the Biden administration's dislike of the Saudi government, um, the, the the Saudi, you know, the because of the Khashoggi killings, the reporter, reporter in quotes at the Washington Post, um, as well as the Saudis' war in uh, in Yemen against the Houthis. So they delist the, they remove the Houthis from the foreign terrorist organization designation. Um, and then here we are three years later, almost, almost to the day, right? Within a couple of weeks. Um, I believe it was early February when they delisted the, the Houthis of 2021. They're back to, to listing them as a terrorist organization. I really think this, um, when you look at this, it shows the, the factlessness of the Biden administration when it comes to issues like dealing with the Houthis. It's, it, it, I think it failed to see the forest um, through the trees. It was so upset at the Saudis and so wanted to, to send a message to the Saudis um, about its distaste of, of uh, its fight against the Houthis that it pulled an actual terrorist organization which has a history of conducting attacks. These attacks uh, that began on uh, um, November 19th against shipping, um, the Houthis were doing this from what 2016 to 2020, where no, that wasn't to, to this scale, but we're conducting attacks against shipping in the Red Sea um, right. through the Babel Mandip Strait. People forget this. The, the Biden administration was not thinking about this. I think, you know, kudos to them for, and I don't think admitting a mistake, but never would admit that was a mistake, but for correcting a mistake. But um, to me, this just shows how little they understand the terrorist organizations and, and Iran's network, its access of resistance um, and how it employs it throughout the Middle East. And the, the Biden administration really, you know, this is one bright spot in, in a huge dark storm because this administration is concerned about escalation as did these groups escalate against us. Um, I, I, you know, so, yeah, we can we can, you know, give a little golf <laughs> clap. For that designation of the Houthis, right, but right. so much more needs to happen. Yeah, um, yeah. Was, I mean, yeah. In hindsight, it's, it was an incredibly short-sighted move to do that to remove them off the uh, the, uh, the list of foreign terrorist organizations. But I mean, listen. I think they've learned. They understand. Hopefully, they learned and they understand now that you're a proxy of Iran or, or client of Iran, as far as you know, as, a, as an organization. That they, um, you are, you know, the, the, these are that these are these essentially these groups are terrorist organizations. They're not going to change, right? And 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 we see that now. Yes, three years later, look what's happening now. Um, so it's just uh, so. Hopefully, future administrations learn from this mistake. And uh, I, I've seen a few. There are a few groups. Don't get me wrong. Um, that have been delisted. Okay, in past years and previous years, but. These groups have been are gone. They're they're not yeah. operating. They're, right. They're just done for. So, um, which is fine. That's totally fine. But the Houthis, they stuck around. They never reformed. Give me a break, right? So they, they remained were, part of Iran's axis of resistance, uh, and uh, uh, so. as we now see, a key member, right? Exactly. And look what's happening now. So, I mean, yeah, they're so anyway. Won't get too much into it, but I think the viewers understand, or rather, the listeners understand that. 
just a mistake. And thankfully, yes, it's sort of being corrected. Um, I say sort of because I think they were just they were sanctioned as SDGTs instead of an actual FTO. Yeah, that's always a curious one. That's such I don't a know, bureaucratic. Like, yeah, um, less penalties, distinction. I I, <sighs> I don't get that, but whatever. I think I don't know. Maybe I no. I, I do understand that it's just so bureaucratically confusing that yeah. it's not even worth trying to explain, John. <laughs> You'd need to get a State Department official on here to to dissemble, and I don't mean that, but you know, for a good ten minutes, and we'd still be at the same point of going. Why not call it a foreign terrorist organization then? And that's just the way it is. Exactly, exactly. Or, or, or we can get to just get Benham on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Wait, are you calling so, Benham a, a State <laughs> Department official? I'm going to tell him. Right, 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 right. No, he'll, he'll do a great job explaining, and I'm sure he he, he he may next time he's on. But, um, but yeah. So it's just uh, some of this is just yeah. This is uh, the frustrating part of this job yeah. where you look at as soon as the decision was made to delist the Houthis. I just sat there and, and shook my head going, what, what is the point of this? And I think a lot of that was really to reverse a policy of an administration. It just didn't like to put a finger in the eye of the Saudis. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that really isn't a way to run foreign policy. There was no good reason to delist the Houthis. The only, the one that they mentioned getting, making it easier to deliver humanitarian aid we find ways around that all the time. You know, you could still keep the group listed as a, as a foreign terrorist organization and provide humanitarian aid if you wanted to to the to the people living under Houthi rule. So, uh, but you know, here we are. Um, well, Joe, anything else uh, before we wrap this up? Oh, uh, we could go on for hours. I know, know that. I, we could. <laughs> so we didn't even scratch the the issues going on with the Iraqi and Syrian militias. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots going on there. There's <laughs> just so much going on, so little time for us to discuss. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.